welcome to this week's VFX show. I am Mike Seymour and we are going solo. Uh, well, actually not, I'm not going, okay, it's a bit confusing, right? We're going to see solo or rather have seen solo, but not doing the podcast solo because of course we never do. Uh, with that, I'll cross to uh, Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? Uh, very good. Excited to uh, talk about uh, this movie. Yes, I know you're the kind of guy that shoots first. Um, <laughs> and Ty Rebney is also joining us. Ty, you haven't been on the show for a while, but welcome back. Thank you so much. I, I do believe it's been nearly two years. Well, we uh, we always like having you on. Um, as you know, uh, dear listeners, we normally have a sort of a uh, fairly regular uh, panel, but we like to have different people in from time to time. And uh, certainly today is a, a great opportunity to do that. Uh, and we you know, obviously expect that uh, we'll get, uh, you know, different people coming in in different weeks as we move forward. Um, but don't read anything into that. Um, it's just how uh, people's schedules are at the moment. Hey, um, Ty, uh, where are you at at the moment? I right now am in Midlothia, Virginia, which is a suburb of Richmond, Virginia. And I have been teaching for the last five years at Virginia Commonwealth University. And since Last we spoke, I've uh, become the chair of the Department of Communication Arts. Uh, this will be my second year in that role. So obviously, as you haven't been on for a little while, uh, maybe just give like the two-cent tour of your background prior to that, just so people know where you're coming from. Well, uh, I started out in visual effects at Industrial Light and Magic in 1990 and was the VFX uh, art director on Jurassic Park. Uh, went on to do uh, The Flintstones, Casper the Friendly Ghost, uh, re-released the original Star Wars, then went freelance. We've been working with Del Toro pretty much for most all of his English language films, uh, including most recently Pacific Rim. And uh, I was the lead vehicle designer for Avatar with James Cameron. So uh, obviously, incredibly well, uh, uh, I guess, uh, versed in the in the art and science of filmmaking, but also in particular of some of the issues facing filmmakers when they're doing something like this uh, in solo. So I'm going to start with you, if I can, and say, did did you like this film? Where are you on the whole kind of Star Wars? Um, you know, I guess the journey that we're experiencing at the moment with these origin stories. I I did enjoy the picture quite a great deal. Um, I didn't have a strong sense about how I would react to it before going into it. I mean, I really liked Rogue One, uh, but that was all kind of original characters uh, except for the end. Um, and uh, so I, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it, but uh, I thought that, that it was a solid outing. I thought the casting was was really good. I thought that the um, you know, the, the, the story was nice, the kind of homage, you know, the, 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 uh, nods to the, to the previous films were fun. Um, uh, so yeah, I come out on the plus side. I, I, I'm, I would, I wouldn't say that it was mind blowing, uh, but it certainly was enjoyable and I, I liked it a great deal. And what about you, man? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I would, I would echo a lot of what Ty was saying. I think, um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about when, um, sort of what my response to the movie is, is, um, sort of the, 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 uh, continuing sort of, um, evolution of Star Wars as a, as a cultural phenomena and as a series of movies in particular in this sort of recent age. And, um, 
I wasn't like a really big fan of uh, the Ryan Johnson uh, Last Jedi movie, and I feel like <laughs> I feel like it's really impolitic somehow just to say I you don't like that movie. It's but I, have, I feel like you have to qualify it with the fact that like look, I don't have any problem with the diversity of the cast and I don't have any problem with, uh, you know, female leads and female stars. I think that's awesome. Like, I'm totally into that part of it. I just thought it was clunky filmmaking and and some poor sort of writing and storytelling. Um, and and I, I didn't feel like the characters cared about each other in any way. And so, you know, in, in what, seeing this film... Um, I actually did really like this movie. I thought it was really fun. For me, it was probably the closest of the new films um, to touch on, at least for me, what I feel like is the is the sort of um, the flavor and the the essence of at least what Star Wars and those movies was those, what those movies represented to me as a kid. It was it was really fun. I thought it was really fun. I thought um, I got a sense that the characters, um, you know, had rich, complex, interesting relationships with one another that developed over the story. And, you know, it was a, it was a space Western and I thought it was, it was cool. I thought, uh, uh, all the controversy surrounding, you know, the firing of the initial, um, or the, the parting ways of the Lucasfilm and the, the directors, um, initially, and then bringing in Ron Howard, you know, I was worried that, oh, this might be a disaster. And the sort of pre-release uh, buzz was not super positive, but I, I actually thought it was, I think, I think it's the best of the, the new, uh, movies, uh, for my money. I thought it was really great. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. I, I guess for me, I think it was a really well-made film and I really like Ron Howard as a director uh, and I think the visual effects were terrific. I just don't like origin stories. Um, and, and I know that about myself. Like when I'm watching the origin story, I kind of like, well, you're not going to... You're only going to backfill on stuff that I know. And like even if I'm in a film and they have a flashback to how someone was talking to their father to, that influenced them growing up, I just don't enjoy it. I like want to move the universe forward somehow in my head and just getting backfill on why somebody has dice or why somebody has, you know, a particular expression. It's like, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's a bit like, I, I, a bit almost like watching a making of, like I find it interesting, but I don't find it to be compelling. Like, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's how they did that. That Okay, that's kind of interesting. Um, or, you know, that's an alternate sort of storyline, you know, in a... Uh, DVD extra. I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, but it's not like I go, oh my God, that's awesome. Uh, so yeah, I was never going to go ape crazy on a, on a solo origin story. And I, you know, you'd have to tape me down and staple my eyelids open to see another, like, for example, Spider-Man origin story, right? I'd just be like, <laughs> no, you know, anything yeah. but that. Um, so, because it's kind of like you kind of know where they're going and then there are like tons of in-jokes, which is, which is good in some sense, but it's, it's a bit like having yummy leftovers. Like it's, you know, it's like, oh, great, this is in the fridge. I really like this. It was great the other night. But it's never quite as good as when it was served originally. Um, I don't know. Does any of that echo with you, Ty, or are you just really into origin stories? Uh, you know what? I guess I'm maybe not. I don't. I don't know that I was listening to you uh, discuss it, and I was thinking I don't know that I have a strong feeling as a category, like an origin story category, is maybe something I haven't developed. I, I'm, it, that could just be that you know, to me, those stories um, 
didn't they weren't so frequent until more recently i guess i mean yeah. you know it seems like they can uh remake uh you know uh, spider-man every couple of years spider-man every couple of years and I, i'm not really following those as closely i'm not a big um fan of the uh that whole universe of uh comic books so i, I guess i don't have a preloaded you know disposition for that um but when i was listening to you i could say like yeah that that is sort of true there wasn't anything particularly surprising um that I, it was more fun to just see it revealed, uh, I guess, in a visual form, um, uh, more than it it was, um, you know, something that I didn't know. Like, it, there was no reveal where I went, oh, my God, you know, he's really, you know, Chewbacca's, uh, you know, uncle. You know, there was nothing <laughs> that really blew my mind like that. But, um, but, but it's almost like even if there was a reveal like that, it still has to normalize back to time with what everything you already know, right? So... It's only ever going to be this is what's under the wrapping, not there's a whole new present here. Well, I, I would, I guess, I guess I would like to feel like if I look at Godfather Two, for example, when we follow, you know, Don Corleone as a young man through Robert De Niro, um, I found that really compelling because he was an enigma in a way, you know, in the first mm -hmm. Godfather, Brando was sort of an enigma. So I think you could, I guess, I could could construct a, a, a narrative where, you know, something was. It, it made me see the character in a new way or it made me understand okay, it in a new way. Can I, can I say that I think the Godfather, I mean, okay, I'm going to back, backpedal here. <laughs> I, I totally love Godfather Part 2, but I would say that in the same way that I didn't have this um, origin story problem with Prometheus, is the same reason I didn't have it with Godfather, which is it went so far back that the origin was like a whole different story. Whereas this, like... Like Han isn't that much different in age here than he will be when I see him in episode four mm -hmm. um, in New Hope. So it's not like, uh, you know, it's not like, like, like the, the original story with De Niro in, in Godfather Part Two was like a whole different thing. It wasn't the four years leading up to the wedding in Godfather Part One. Um, do you know what I mean? So yeah, I yeah. feel like that's a, I, I do, I do. I'm okay on that, um, but yeah, I just don't like backfilling into just these bits that happen right before, uh, unless it's whole new characters, um, like Rogue One, um, like a whole new spate of things that isn't a story that I know how it's all going to tie up. But most of the characters in this film, I knew where they were going to end up and where they were going to be and what was going to yeah, yeah. happen. And uh, so I mean, it's I think enjoyable, it's, I think it's but not brilliant. I think it's a legitimate concern. In fact, it's funny when you bring up Rogue One because I, I didn't, I went right away when it opened for some reason. And uh, that's an interesting piece in the sense that it, it, it is the reveal that you finally catch on like, oh, wait a minute, this is the beginning of A New Hope, you know, that, because I didn't know that when I went in. I hadn't read anything. Oh, really? Okay. I left myself. Yeah, I totally, I totally didn't have that in my mind. I, I kind of, was avoiding the, you know, spoilers. And, <clears throat> and you know, I know John Noel well from when I was at ILM, so I was excited that so many of my, you know, my colleagues were, you know, getting an opportunity to really delve into an area that uh, they, they were passionate about. And so I thought the brilliance of it was sort of the setup was you, at least for me, again, you know, like I didn't see it coming. So it was sort of a, uh, you know, uh, the reveal was very powerful. Um, and I can see what you're saying, you know, I can kind of see it both ways that there wasn't anything particularly new. I mean, you know, we knew that the Millennium Falcon was won in a gambling game. You know, we knew, 
that there were these various elements that, you know, somewhere along the line, Chewbacca had to come into play. And, you know, so it, it was sort of, I think you make a good point. I mean, I, I didn't, that doesn't diminish my uh, experience at all. Uh, but again, I find it most interesting that I am going to leave tonight's uh, conversation with a different kind of view on prequels in the sense that I, I didn't have that as a category, I don't think. Uh, maybe it's Maybe it's because I don't see as many or I just don't process them the, the same way. But I think you're making uh, very legitimate um, um, observations. Hey, Matt, one of the things I really loved about this film is seeing the Millennium Falcon looking clean and mm -hmm. nice and um, at least for a while. Um, it was, I kind of hurt my, my, uh, my heart a little when it was so beaten up and dirty in some of the films <laughs> we've seen uh, since. It just always seemed like, oh, that would be like really nice if they just clean it. Um, and in this film, the Millennium Falcon has a very strong role, as Ty was just kind of saying. Do you have the same kind of affection for the... For the spaceship, I mean, it's one of the sort of great iconic spaceships of, well, the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as a, it, it was, I thought that was really fun to sort of see it as this clean, pristine, kind of like, you know, super fast hot rod bachelor pad in space kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the way that they um, redressed um, what was sort of that iconic sort of rusted out um, design that, you know, from the first movies, the way they went back and sort of tried to reimagine, all right, well, what do all these like sort of weird, like, you know, padding or sound dampening things on the inside of these hallways look like when they're new, right? And they're, they're white and super clean. And, you know, um, I think that was, that was really cool to see. It was kind of fun to think of it in that context. Um, and they did, you know, the one thing, I guess, to the, to the front with the, what they, they made a story point about it was some additional thing that, um, the Donald Glover's, Donald Glover's, uh, Lando had added to it. And I mean, it, it was fun. There's a really fun video actually, um, before the movie came out and it was Donald Glover giving a tour of that set of the Millennium Falcon. I don't know if you saw that, but, um, he, he takes you into his cape closet <laughs> and stuff. And, and it was just funny cause he's, he's such a kind of charismatic and like fun, you know, creator, actor, writer, whatever. Um, so that was kind of cool, but yeah, I mean, I thought that was neat. I thought it was a fun, um, it was a fun thing to see and, you know, to the whole thing about like uh, origin stories and stuff like that. I, I get what you're saying. I, and I do think there are things in it that feel like they're just origin story, tip of the hat to fans, like the thing about the dice and, you know, uh, seeing him uh, win the ship in the, in the, in the uh, card game or whatever. And those aren't really that big a deal, I guess, to me, like they're sort of like, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's kind of, you know, it's kind of what you imagine happened, right? Um, but I did feel like there was a whole other kind of layer and context to aspects of the movie. It felt like there was this kind of, um, in the script, there was this kind of McCabe and Mrs. Miller kind of vibe going on in it. And I felt like there was kind of a, a, a slightly more sophisticated um, structure to um, the reveal of characters and character motivations than maybe what, at least I felt like I saw in the last Star Wars movie. So I don't know. There were aspects of it that I thought still still kind of worked. I did like the train heist as a narrative bit, right? Because we haven't had a train heist and 
It's almost like felt a, like that could have been a movie unto itself, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, that was fun. I think like some of the other stuff was a bit like, you know, it was fun. It just wasn't, and, and I'm not saying it was badly directed or, or badly done. It just wasn't setting my, but the train heist I could kind of get into because it was a whole new thing and it was like on a small level. Just wanted to see how it played out and what would happen, and you know, people died, and there were people from Westworld in it, and that made it really interesting. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought you, I agree with you. I, I thought that, um, you know, in the trailer, I <clears throat> there was the shot of you know, a couple of characters on top of the train, and I thought, oh, well, here we go, we're, we're going to have a set piece that's going to be derived from you know, the old western train robbery. Which, which actually, it had a lot of elements of with the you know uncoupling of cars and so forth. But I thought the staging of it was really, um, you know, really solid. And the kind of um, the the way that the the train moved on the track, and the idea that there was an upper carriage and a lower carriage, and the idea that you know you could find yourself you know, in peril just from being in the wrong part of the train, uh, that, you know, kind of was a little Indiana Jones-esque in a way, you know, mm, with yeah. where you could really, you know, it was a really solid set piece. It was well-constructed and, um, you know, each piece of dread, uh, you understood where characters were. So logistically speaking, you could worry about them in a way that's like, oh no, you know, like that person's still there and this person's still here. And another thing I thought it did exceptionally well was, which is very difficult, and and it actually speaks to, I think, both the design of the sequence and also just the VFX work. Is it it really allowed for a big range of scale? So you had the train is a really large object with complex, uh, you know, uh, movements and and big you know carriages and big cars or whatever you would call them, and then people on top of it who are much smaller in scale, and then the vehicles, the uh, raiders who came flying in with their you know, uh, kind of hovering vehicles were very small and very, um, you know, uh, fine detail. And and I thought that yet there were several uh, kind of vista shots where I could really sense like what was which, you know, what was the volumes of the things, what was what was really large, and then what were these smaller things? And they all had kind of a presence and identity that I I, I it kind of. Um, we see it in the real world all the time. Like if you look at the diehard movies or something where there's humans interacting with something that has a lot of scale, like a large aircraft or whatever. But I couldn't really recall a, an effect sequence, at least an action effect sequence, um, with so much, uh, you know, VFX work and digital work where it really seemed to me like it was really um, harmonious visually and um, aesthetically uh really you know kind of pleasing and and then it still worked it still allowed these um elements to have their own kind of um you know scale and presence i mean i was really surprised by that i liked it a lot i I think that's a really good point i mean and that's a i think that is one of the probably the really interesting things about that sequence too and then you know the environment and the landscape um you know also uh presents us with like a, a a visual um you know, sense of scale and place. And you're able to follow the narrative in the way that the sequence is constructed. Like you're, I never felt lost in that sequence, which I think is an inherent uh, danger when you have something that, you know, is a huge complex uh, sort of set piece like that. But then the one thing that actually, as you were talking about it, Ty, that I was thinking of is I do feel like it did remind me a little bit of um, the first Mission Impossible movie, uh, the 
Brian De Palma directed one where they have that huge, um, the channel uh, train yeah. sequence Except where they've got the a helicopter. helicopter going into it was just so absurd was and ridiculous. so stupid. Yeah, <laughs> but, mean, it, but it did have that same kind of thing where it was like people on top of the train and there was fighting on the train and then there was like a, an additional um, vehicle, albeit an absurd one. But um, yeah, and that was sort of a, n- not totally digital. That was like it's funny you said it because I actually practical. went to the Mad Max films, um, like the second Mad Max film, also when there's the train that's on the track and you've got a car coming at it from the other direction uh, yeah, and yeah. he's on the front trying to get to the to get the um, pellets which are really small like the, the shotgun um, and there's mm-hmm, like it's, mm-hmm. it's hanging there and there's there's like drama at a micro level on this kind of like hand level scale but then there's the trains coming in opposite directions now obviously it's another train but it's not so much the train of it it's the idea that you've got these sort of like big things and then tiny things happening and you're right you don't get that in the space sequences do you because in the space sequences you kind of cut from this macro view of a spaceship to this sort of interior personal level scale and there's nothing right. in between right it's pretty rare that you'll come in at kind of a mid scale on a on a spaceship shot so you're either kind of full cg over here wide and we're seeing how it's trying to escape from monster or planet or black hole or we're inside and people are bouncing around and being knocked left and right and trying to fire guns and stuff and you're right that's a really interesting um sort of a problem but also it's it's very engaging as a uh, that train narrative because you have these different compelling things like they're they're also those ships coming out to defend the train as well as the raiders as well as you know things that are going to be happening with um what's her name the girlfriend up forward uh closer to where the um you know who dies one from the bridge yeah yeah so there's like a lot of and i think that's really interesting when you've got lots of things that your attention's here then your attention's there then your attention's here and it's all in the same opera as it were as opposed to say in the last avengers film where that was happening but in two different locations and you're just cutting between sure. them. you're cutting the same location and you can see a bit more information about what's happening in the sort of distance of the shot if you want to go there while someone's struggling not to fall off a piece of scaffolding in the close close up i do think f- from a script standpoint and a, and a character standpoint i still feel like it was it felt lazy uh, script-wise and story-wise that Thandie Newton's character on the bridge, that she just somehow decides, like, for this one heist where the stakes aren't really that high, really. Like, it's just they're just trying to steal. I mean, it's, it's a lot of money, I guess. They're trying to get her, whatever they call money in their, in their parlance. But, like, but she just decides, like, all right, babe, you know, go for it. Like, you know, I, I'm not going to make it out of this one. And she sacrifices herself. And it just seemed like, for what? Like, it felt kind of, <laughs> that was the one part that I thought was pretty weak in terms of the uh, uh, the writing in the story. That was the one part that, I, it didn't make sense. It didn't, um, it just felt like a, a throwaway uh, yeah, character. Yeah, it wasn't very consequential either. I mean, yeah. Yeah. you know, like, they, there's this character and you you kind of, you know, you know, given these breadcrumbs to empathize and to try to like recognize them, and then you're supposed to be like, oh no, like they're really blown up. But then after that, they're completely gone from the movie. You know, it wasn't you weren't thinking about it on your way home. You know, it, well, yeah, and there's not like a lot of emotional um, like uh, recoil that comes mm-hmm. from her loss. You know, yeah. to the yeah. Woody Harrelson character yeah. either. It's sort of like, well, I guess he didn't really care that much about her. You know, yeah. 
I, I, I felt that the, the, the same way about it. It was a little bit um, clunky. Um, I don't know. It just seemed, it, it was, it was, you know, it's funny when you start to say, well, it didn't seem necessary. Well, it was fine. You know, it was fine. Um, but it, it felt, um, you know, less, um, awesome, I guess. <laughs> so I would say it's, it was kind of a beat where I was sort of like, oh yeah, I guess they're gone. And now, you know, it's sort of like, wasn't that important after all, you know? Well, as I said, I'm not saying that it's a bad film or that I didn't enjoy it, just that it didn't, like, drive me to distraction with, like, oh, my God, I've really got to think this through because, wow, what are the implications? And how did that happen? I just sort of, like, left the cinema and go, that was great. Hey, anyone want mm-hmm. a coffee? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah, of course. But, I, I think but does any good. Star Wars movie really do that, though? Like, does, well, does now, it really, why can't it? Because and a, a, and a Marvel film does. <laughs> I mean, why can't a Star Wars film do that? I love Star Wars. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Um, no. Can I just say, though, that, that the filmmaking side of things now, I think there's a lot to discuss in this film. I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so can I shift the, the conversation there, as we tend to like to do? So we, we published two stories on FX Guide. Um, one was about the film and... You know, uh, some really interesting stuff, I think, in terms of uh, Rob Bretto, who's now head of ILM as the, not only the supervisor on the film, but he was elevated to being a producer, uh, one of the co-producers, and, you know, sat with Ron Howard and just discussed the filmmaking of it, not just the visual effects uh, supervision, which I think is terrifically, uh, uh, I mean, Rob's a hell of a nice guy, but it's also like a really great thing to have that happen for a supervisor, full stop. Anyway, we had that story got quite a lot of reads. We had a second story we wrote on um, the technical onset immersion environments and that mm-hmm. got like three times as much uh, attention even though normally enough I publish a part two of a story, gets a lot less because everyone's like, you know, you, you see a story, you, there's a part two, you kind of like just have a normally a, a bit of a fall off. Well, that's such an interesting story. It's such an interesting um, sort of combination of like old world rear projection kind of techniques, but with, you know, sort of juiced uh, for the, the, you know, the modern 21st century digital age of, of filmmaking. I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah, I thought it was really fascinating. This idea, if you haven't read the article, is that they produced a large number of uh, visual effects shots, especially in the Millennium Falcon, but not just there, by not having green screen, but having uh, projected imagery. Uh, and the two examples we use in that story is Millennium Falcon, obviously doing the the uh, famous um, Kessel Run, in, and the second one is uh, the sequence that... Um, uh, well, actually, they did the, also the speed eraser at the very beginning, like the chase to get to the um, to leave the planet uh, in the speeder. But also on the star yacht, um, and on the star yacht, they actually kind of did this huge uh, wraparound on the sound stages at uh, Pinewood. Um, the two are different mainly because in the second one, it's like everything out the window, which I'm going to reference. It was a lot like what happened on uh, Oblivion when they're in the yeah, sort of right. um, top apartment. Same people, by the way. And then they're in an apartment and they had like, the clouds outside. Um, but we don't have the same kind of interactive lighting. It's not playing like a character. Whereas in the Millennium Falcon, they're you know, in that kind of cockpit area and it's really playing around them as it is when they're uh, driving the um, uh, in the chase sequence. So I think that's kind of super interesting and also indicative of how projector technology has shifted so far that we can actually pull that off. Um, so if I can ask you first, away from the story, 
did it seem like believable or or quality or did it seem like we had because in the old days you could pick rear projection a million miles off and it was ghastly yeah what do you think I mean, I thought it was spectacular. I mean, I think the cockpit stuff, I know they did a little bit of that in Rogue One. And um, uh, I thought all the cockpit stuff was great. The, the, you know, all the interactive lighting when you cut from, you know, sort of the, the classic shot, like uh, from anyway, the, the vantage point of the ship where you're looking sort of behind the actor's heads out the, the sort of world war two bomber window of the cockpit, that stuff all I thought looked really nice. But I think even more interestingly was the, the reverse shot of that, where you see, um, the actors sitting, um, you know, in the door leading out of the cockpit. And I think when you saw that kind of, um, lighting, uh, as well, that was sort of being generated by, um, the projection, I thought that was, was really good. And then the, the stuff in the, um, the yacht. Yeah. It was, it's interesting that you mentioned the, um, what was it? Oblivion. Like I mm. didn't, I, I mean, it makes sense. It was the same people, I guess, that were involved in setting that up. Cause it, that was the first thing that I thought of when I saw, um, those first images of the constructing that in the round to get, um, lighting essentially going all the way around. But I thought it was, it was really, really effective. And the, you know, the way they sort of created the, you know, parabolic screens. And I think they talked about too in that, in that article about turning uh, some of the projectors, they were turned on their side. So they had a, a wider, or they were taller than they were wide and then they were stitching them together. Yeah, uh, I think it was pretty funny that the team that did that, um, which is Lux Machina, uh, when they did it on, um, on Oblivion, they had all sorts of problems, right? The, the machines would literally overheat and, and uh, <laughs> flip out with the projectors when you try turning them on the side and doing all that kind of stuff. And now they can use these uh, incredible projectors, and not only projectors, incredible lenses, which is another thing we talked about in the article. Yeah. Um, just if you haven't seen it, so the the, uh, the lenses um, in a normal projector, you know, you sit in the cinema, you'd have a projector up the back of the room, projects obviously out of the projector at the front, like a slide projector when you were a kid. And I didn't think twice about it until we started talking and then we were, the problem of the throws, because if you have this huge, massive uh, 360 kind of psych that goes around, then how do you get far enough back to have all your projectors then projecting on these uh, screens? And the solution is to have these lenses that basically um, it projects out and up and effectively the image sits behind the physical placement of the projector. It's as if it's like bouncing off. It isn't, but imagine it was bouncing off a mirror and just going straight behind you. Um, but the way, the way they get the throws is to sort of come at it from almost below where the projection uh, needs to be. So it's very much not what you'd expect. You'd walk around at sort of the bottom of the screens and that's where your projectors would be uh, shooting up. Um, and that saves about 60% of the distance that you'd otherwise need for a throw. So obviously advances in the projectors, advances in the lenses, and you get these terrific um, quality images. And I said, oh, why didn't you do this with LEDs? Because I was thinking of gravity. And they were like, mm -hmm. actually the LEDs were too bright. Um, hmm. They did use them for the cars, for the chase sequence. I'm gonna call it cars, but you know, the speeders. Um, yeah. Because they could move them uh, very much to get the reflections in the windshield and the bonnet that didn't cover the actors and that kind of stuff. But generally mm -hmm. speaking, uh, the DOP liked to have you wide open and the LEDs were too bright. And if you drop them in the fader sense, you get uh, effectively less color space definition. So you get less than effectively an 8-bit. So they were best better off projecting. But um, I had no idea these projectors had advanced this fast, this far. It didn't seem that long ago that we were looking well, at it living. Well, it kind of... It 
kind of reminds me a little bit, although I think this is probably even, you know, certainly newer technology and maybe more sophisticated in some ways with regards to the lensing. But I did a project, um, like a, a team taught class where it was a 360 video class, uh, yep. uh, where we were kind of just playing around with uh, 360 degree video and like, what kind of stories could you tell? And we partnered with uh, the Virginia Science Museum here where they have a... Uh, a dome theater and it's a yep. digis, digistar system or something projection where I think there's, I think there's five separate projectors and the, they can rip the signal or the video, uh, in real time. They sort of, or I guess they do a little pre-processing and it rips that video apart and then it stitches it back together as it projects it on the dome. And one of the things that I did just anecdotally, like with the students there was I, they would be standing up in the back of this dome and they were watching um, some of the work that they had done be projected. And I was photographing the students in front of the dome, um, it, like with the projection behind them. And it had that same um, kind of look uh, that some of these sort of behind the scenes photographs have. And it seems like it's kind of built and, I, and it made me think like, oh, it'd be so cool. You could just build this huge dome and you could, you know, project stuff on it and you could use that as an environment. I mean, I think what they're doing is infinitely more, um, uh, or uh, certainly more sophisticated in terms of the technique, but it, it just makes so much sense if it's, you know, becomes economically viable and technically feasible, you know, for a movie like this or something where you have a large uh, windowed vista to just think about doing it in that way. Cause it, it gives the actors, you know, real things to play off of. And it um, arguably would reduce costs if, um, you're not having to sort of deal with, you know, green screens, comps, extractions, and um, replacements too. So, I mean, it just seems like a really, really cool development in terms of kind of this old school, new school way of um, capturing stuff in camera on set. Yeah, and, and Ty, I was thinking also, as, as, as uh, Matt just touched on, it's good for the actors because you've got something to act to, not just a green screen, but also for the director, like being able to in real time just because uh, that's what they had, you know, they, they had this playing in real time and they could overlay on top of it. Like I want to, let's say uh, it's a flash of a cannon or an explosion. I want a cannon now. They can just trigger that in real time off a, effectively like an iPad. Um, that's really a different role now the director and the supervisor are having with the team than this idea of will post kind of sync this in with what sort of you've got to imagine going outside the window. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, <clears throat> it is always um, interesting when you can get actors, you know, some extra cues, you know, because I remember way back, um, you know, in, in the old, old days, you know, you're basically using a, a ball on the end of a stick and you're saying, you know, this is a dinosaur, you know, this is a, um, this is a, you know, a magic gnome or whatever the thing of the day was. And, and then people are expected to um, respond accordingly. But, um, you know, it, it, the, I believe, you know, I think every, every uh, director believes the more you can give the actors, the more they're going to put that extra layer of awesome on top of the, you know, the scene, you know, as it's described. And so I know that, um, you know, just, you know, anything that makes the actor's experience of that moment more uh, visceral and more real is only going to add uh, to their ability to, as Matt said, um, you know, uh, be present or, or riff off of the, um, the things around them. So uh, I, think, I think that it's interesting, too, just talking about projectors and stuff, that 
you know, everything is getting that way. You know, every every technology that has to do with, um, you know, uh, the creation of images, the you know, the use of, you know, any kind of like what we would call like hard, um, you know, technologies, lenses, like you were just mentioning, it's it's all improving so quickly that that there's this idea I talk about with students uh, that which uh, is referred to as Rip Van Winkle syndrome which is that if you look away from a technology, by the time you look back at it, it's changed so much as to not necessarily be what you remembered. Um, <laughs> and I feel that constantly now. Um, and it's, it's, I, you know, I get us, I mean, I think everybody's read the same books I have, but, you know, we're entering an era where if you don't pay attention, uh, even for six months, the breakthroughs and the innovations are going to be so substantial that you'll go, wow, you know, I, I, I didn't know that, you know, I, I thought we were still doing it this way. And, um, you know, I think that uh, these are the beginnings of multiple conversations that we'll be having over the next uh, several years that are going to be one mind blow after another. <clears throat> but it is, an, it's very interesting that it goes back to me to like, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey with the front projection and then Close Encounters. And then, you know, again, it's just like this building. But now uh, the technology is really um, so powerful that why, why not? You know, like, why not do it? Yeah. Here's the really interesting thing. I was talking to Philip from Lux Machina for the story. Now they used a bunch of tech that isn't actually what you sort of expect. It's, and I was interested to you know hear about that and the different sort of software tools that they're using, some of which I certainly haven't used. Um, uh, and I'll probably come back to that. But I was talking to him and the funny thing is he was on set. Now, I can't discuss where he was on set of, but he was on set of, a, um, of an event that, and I sort of was, you know, happy to talk to him and he was like in rehearsals and it was, it transpired. Let's just say it was, I'm not, it's not like uh, a secret, but in, in one sense, it's not relevant, but it was like a big, uh, kind of like an, a music event type thing, like, or a, a sh an award show. Yeah. And, and so they're just in rehearsals. So it's not that stressful as you know, when you're in rehearsals, um, obviously if you were live on the event, he'd never take the call. So they had a couple of days and they were setting up projectors and doing stuff. And he was just on this call and they kept on stopping and going on and stuff. And so at some point we just just drifted onto this project that he was on because he kept on saying, hang on a second, I've just got to speak to the director and he'd be on the, the, uh, the thing and he'd come back, hey, I'm back now. Anyway, so I was sort of curious and like, and he was like, oh yeah, well, you've got to understand like this Star Wars stuff isn't actually a big production for us. Like compared to what we do with concerts and stuff we do with these, uh, some of the award shows, it's kind of a, you know, sort of average production. And I was kind of a bit gobsmacked because I'm so used to the film industry kind of leading the way with like the super mm -hmm. tech that no one's ever done before. And he was like, yeah, yeah, pretty easy. Uh, you know, nothing like that really pushed us because it wasn't in that film world that he was talking about. Now, First time they did it on, um, uh, you know, obviously what well, was four or five years ago on Oblivion. It was very new, but now it's actually super common, and they're doing it live for shows like a yeah. and a music awards show where you can't get a second take. So the fact that you you know anything goes wrong on set, you can actually do another take is like a huge luxury. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting that that you know that isn't even being driven by our industry. It's being driven by these live events. Hence, the all these new technologies that are coming up that are live uh, tech so that they can do this stuff. Um, you know, so it's they not a say, matter of... Uh, 
Oh, sorry, Mike. No, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I was just going to say, I saw a, um, a, a couple of years ago, I remember seeing a video. I don't know. I, I have to dig around and see if I could find it, but it was, it was a marketing event that was a live event somewhere. I believe it was in London and it was under like a, a railroad bridge, you know, um, and it was a projected, a live projection on some new car and they had projected and mapped all these projections. So they were wrapping, you know, and then deform, you know, sort of unwrapping in the projection perfectly on the, the contours of the vehicle. And it was sort of like, you know, it, it was almost made it look like it was transforming, like the surface of the car yep. was changing and shifting and you could see it, th- you could see through it and they used to reveal the engine underneath and, you know, sort of parts of the structure below it. And I, I remember at the time watching that as a projection that involved a lot of computer graphics as well and thinking like, well, that's, you know, it's cool. Like if you were happen to be walking through that tunnel and you saw this thing, you'd be like, what the heck? Like, cause it's just so unusual and such an interesting, um, uh, thing to do, but then to sort of think about that technology a few years ago, and then you know, sort of the evolution of of you know the things you're talking about, whether whether it's concerts or big corporate events or product reveals or whatever. Um, I don't know. It's just it is really really interesting as a as a technique and as a technology for use in visual effects in movies, like the, the, the realm of possibilities, I think, you know, uh, that we see in this movie, it feels like we're really just sort of scratching the surface of things that could be done. Yeah. So they, they were using this disguise software, which, um, used to be called D3. And the thing about D3, it was developed actually for a massive attack concert and then U2. And Mm -hmm. now it's used on tons of other things. I said in this article, like Katy Perry or something is the latest one. But the thing about it is, uh, if you imagine that you've got a stage, first of all, the program shows you a stage, like a 3D stage. Um, but then, of course, the projectors, as I just said, aren't somewhere sensible for a human perceptive system to work out that if I projected this incredibly warped image, it would look good. So you have, like, imagine um, a simple stage for a second, like just a natural stage. You'd see at any uh, cinema type, uh, sorry, concert you know, nothing clever, just a, a blank kind of thing. And you've got projectors coming in from the sides. So on the software, you see the stage, you see literally where drum kits are or anything else so that you can mask off areas you don't want it to go. And then let's say you've got two projectors coming left and right to have a very wide image. You get a, a hovering virtual projection in the middle of the cinema. So you yourself can see what it would be kind of like. Um, and this virtualized projection is what you edit, you solve. And then it just hmm. solves that going out to the two side projectors, which do their weird projection lens stuff to make it look like it does. And not only that, but you can then view it from anywhere in the room. And so you've got this entire environment, but it's exactly the same software that you use to run it on the day. Um, and it has timelines and overlays and multiple, you know, uh, like literally like a nonlinear editor. And so like all of this, I'm like, where did this all come from? And it's of course this concert stuff where, you know, yeah. a concert tour for U2 is hundreds of millions of dollars. And of course they can afford to develop this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, um, did really you guys also say there's a, um, like a, I'm not even sure if it's a, it's a, it might, I think it's either just been released or it's about to be released. Um, this small projector unit um, with a mapping software that you can buy like just for home and uh, it projects over whatever you want and then you can give it whatever masks you want. I think you control it by your phone and then the projector does all of this, uh, like the math through the phone or your device, your iPad, does all the math so that it projects correctly. So literally in your house, you would set the projector down and say, oh, that, um, I don't know, 
soccer ball and that other trophy on the wall. I want those two to have projected images on it and it'll do everything I just described. I won't virtualize into all that other carry on, but it'll, for the one projector, it'll project them on so you could have a perfect mapping over the ball, masked off to not be anything else. It's sort of, it's like, it's like uh, $600 or something. It was extraordinary. So does it have some kind um, of like laser rangefinder thing on it or something that it's like Like there's doing... a depth camera part of it yeah. that works out what it's looking at. And then huh. from that, um, it drives the projector. So there's a little unit that sits uh, and you can either buy it with the projector or just separately and run your own projector. Um, I have to look up if I can find the URL for it. I nearly bought one because I was so enthusiastic when I saw it. And then I thought, I actually got no use for this whatsoever. <laughs> like my wife would be really enthusiastic. It's <laughs> like 800 bucks projecting stuff <laughs> yeah, around yeah, the room. Exactly. Um, yet, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, but obviously if you're in a bar or something, it'd be awesome, right? Like you'd just be projecting behind the bar over the bottles and whatever else and <laughs> masking away. I mean, I was like, that's, if I could just think of a cool. reason to justify this, I'd buy it. But um, so anyway, if it's at that end with a single projector and obviously at the high end with these mega systems, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a natural thing to see much more of this on set. Uh, what did you guys so think, it, just uh, getting back to Solo too, like a little bit um, for, uh, in terms of other design and effects elements, like what did you guys think of, um, uh, what was the name of the robot, L3, the Lando's robot? I thought it was great. <laughs> And that was that looked like that was a hybrid, right? Of uh, yeah. some stuff that was captured with her, the the actor who played the robot. She was in a, 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 a motion capture suit, but had some like a chest piece and like part of the head, I think. Yeah, Phoebe had like half a half a robot outfit, and the rest of it was green screen motion capture suit. And they took out the motion capture parts, and wherever possible, kept her like like let's give it as a helmet, like a bike helmet. It's mm-hmm. the head of the uh, robot. And so, uh, yeah, they would keep that actual thing and replace where her neck is with, you know, mechanical parts that obviously wouldn't work in real life. Um, and I was astounded they didn't just replace her completely and put a droid in. But Rob yeah, said too. Phoebe did such a good job that sometimes I would do that, obviously, if there was some particular reason why it didn't work. But generally speaking, they would take whatever they could of her chest plate, her top arm plates and a head, leave those in and just push uh, CG in underneath it, which was kind of astounding, really. Yeah, I thought it, I thought it was great. I, I love that character and I like I liked the... Um, that was one of the things that I was thinking while I was watching it, that it was sort of so resonating with where we are today, you know, the issues mm. that are going on today. But it didn't drag me into, like, completely being editorial. It was sort of just, like, universal. And um, um, and I like the idea of, you know, that the, even the setup was, you know, this is the best um, navigator there is. So I just keep <laughs> the eccentric just keeps coming, but I just <laughs> let it be because I don't want to lose that data. But then at the end, there was almost this weird you know, Lando moment where, you know, the outlandish <laughs> statement that he's really into me, it suddenly seemed like he really was. I, just, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that uh, character and the interaction. And um, and it was interesting in a way that I, I, I guess, I, I think Matt, you said something earlier about, you know, feelings about the original, but, um, or the original trilogy or something. Mm-hmm. But that also spoke to me of, um, 
a kind of new originality with the with that universe uh, in the sense that um the robot took on a new meaning you know uh, it was a it wasn't just a guardian it wasn't just a you know a, a thing that held information it was a it was actually a, a an entity that had learned and had views and had kind of cultural concerns and uh, concerns of identity and those are all mm-hmm. you know so important but uh, it didn't it it didn't it was there but it didn't also disrupt the movie for me anyway i thought it was just really wonderful i thought too it made me think of uh, there's a david fincher uh uh, interview somewhere that I've seen where Fincher was talking about uh, Star Wars. He had been asked at one time to direct, uh, I don't know what, but some one some Star Wars property and turned it down. But he was talking about how he had always seen um, the original Star Wars movies as a story about uh, the two, C-3PO and R2-D2, and that it was a story about slaves, that they were slaves. And then I felt like this script wise, anyway, story wise, it really kind of harkened back to that with her whole kind of thing of her wanting to have this, um, you know, liberation. But, but I totally give you that. And in the cinema, I totally agree with you. I love the character. Thought that was great. The whole idea of your, your point, perhaps even too subtly made about it, not being about current immigration policy, but you know, like mm-hmm. that all great, except here's my problem, right? Clearly one voice in the timeline of before episode four speaks of rights of robots and then is clearly been crushed out of existence and no one ever will raise it again. In other words, the very thing that you applauded for, which would be like some new awareness of like robot rights, clearly in this universe never took off because we've never heard about it in the timelines in four, five, six, sequel, prequel, blah, blah, blah. So it's like this one <laughs> poor lone voice that speaks out for the for the uh, abuse and use of uh, these <laughs> droids and then... Well, fair enough, yeah. It's permanently stuck in the, the wall of the Millennium Falcon, never to be heard of again. Do you see what I mean? Like that's the problem <laughs> yeah, with yeah. these darn prequels. <laughs> it's a great thing. Well, yeah, Couldn't like that have it, been developed? sort of... It's it's to have everything be so canonical where it has to fit in and, you know, mix in with the shape. Maybe that's where the idea of um, non-origin stories, but like standalone stories um, that are maybe just tangential that don't touch on, you know, the characters that we know, but yet develop new characters. Maybe that's where those uh, could really have some some unique and, and more interesting opportunities to explore some sort of just different territory. Well, I, I hear you, and I, Mike, I think you're making a good point. And I, I, again, whenever I leave these shows, I always think about them for several days, but I guess here again, I must, I think of that universe is very large and I could see, you know, a whole planet run by robots in the Star Wars universe. I, well, that'd I be super know. interesting, but yeah, you but can't I'm connect not sure it to this. That, year. What was that? Well, how do you connect to this? Because like we've seen so much uh, Star Wars after this in the timeline and no one has ever raised the issue of being bad well, about droids. Or in- well, but it's only, a, it's only a lot in terms of, uh, it's sort of like, it's a slice of a larger universe. Like we look at the human stories and we think, you know, the Egyptians or, you know, uh, Napoleon or whatever, these huge epic things. But if you started to include the the scope of like a universe, you know, galaxies. I mean, they 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 could be whole. Sure. Movies no, I mean, obviously, an infinite anything. number of. You know, yeah, it doesn't. But, okay, but here's my thing, right? In the TV show Rome, I don't know if you guys saw that on HBO. Oh, I love that. that show. This, 
they, okay, I loved it too. And then this marvelous thing, and they had like a couple of guys who were grunts, yeah. and you kind of saw the world a bit through their eyes as they kind of almost like Forrest Gump bumped into the significant events of ancient Rome. But you also got the perspective from the ruling class. And I just thought, oh, isn't that great? You've got this like duality of like what it was like to live as a grunt and also what it was like to live as a, an emperor, which is what, you, you know, the stories are well, normally about. It's like about. the Rosencrantz and Gildan, Gildenstern or whatever. And, and, and of course, in this, like uh, in the original Star Wars, I love that as well because the droids almost gave me that, right? It was like what it was like to witness the rebellion from the sidelines when you're not active. And if this film was not a prequel, <laughs> I'd be really enthusiastic to see where this story would go. But now I feel like this story isn't going to go anywhere. I know it's not going to go anywhere because I've kind of seen the next couple of decades after this and it didn't go anywhere. Now, you're right, of course, mathematically, it could be going on in some place I don't know about. But it doesn't feel like it is. Well, yeah, I know. But but just take the Hollywood model. It's exactly correct. Like, what if you did a backstory about, you know, uh, this new robot? And it's, you know, it's... Oh no! You don't want to do a robots. prequel of this, do you? You don't want to do a backstory on, on L three. No, oh God, that's no. the that's the point. You could you can do sideline stories. I mean, that's the whole of this whole universe making kind of saga is. It only becomes absurd or, or not logical when it exists and you can point at it. But until it exists and you can point at it, it could be almost anything. And I guess for me, I guess I've always felt like we were only getting snapshots of this larger universe. And in fact, the reason I'm such a non-fan of the uh, second set of trilogies or those prequels uh, is because they ventured into a universe I don't care about. Um, I don't care about this, you know, super political universe where trade wars and embargoes are going on and I can't understand any of it. But it was there in that same Star Wars universe. It just happened to be less interesting to me. So, you know, I'm only saying that. Uh, um, okay, I, but know, if we're at the, if things. you and I are in the writer's room, mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. like, don't do this film. <laughs> do yeah. this robot rebellion film. Do this whole, you know, like. Uh, uh, story about what happens throughout the droids and span three decades or four or five decades um, with with droids seeing characters come and go. Like that's a film I can get behind. And at the end of it, we're, you know, sort of off into new territory. Um, so I don't mind a bit of back in time, but it just felt like this like was just a bit that explained gags. And this was a film that explained backfilled on 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 story points Lore. and yeah. It wasn't yeah it wasn't like but a whole new kind of dimension to this universe with the with this sort of robot um self-awareness uh rights thing could have been fascinating it could have been like yeah. just <laughs> you know happening and not being acknowledged and i'd have been i mean isn't that like a super interesting subject like at what that's point, our season two westworld show though that's true <laughs> no i i hear what you're saying and again i think it's and i'm not I'm not out, out, outwardly disagreeing with your perspective. What I'm, what I'm doing is just sharing how my view is formed and the, the, the little touchstones or hot buttons or however you want to describe this, the, you know, the, 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 the way you perceive these things. Uh, it makes me reflect on how I perceive them. And I guess to me, I always think, well, there might be another place where this is, you know, going on or there might be another place where you know, something larger is happening. Um, and sure. I always like, and like it, what's always funny to me is like all space operas, all of them, you know, Star Trek, 
Star Wars. It doesn't matter. The galaxy is like nearly infinite. Like it's so big and it's so massively, you know, like unbelievably large that even a story that's trying to say we own this big giant turf of planets or galaxies or whatever, you can have so much room for offshoots and other things to be going on that I always think in my mind, well, this is really a tiny story. It kind of gets back to talking about scale at the very beginning with the um, train and the, and the raiders. Scale is always, you know, the, the mountain is bigger than the train. The train is bigger than the raiders. The raiders are, you know, themselves as, as yep. individuals smaller than the vehicles they ride. And I never, even when I, even when I was young and I was like blown away by Empire Strikes Back, I never got a sense that it was the whole of the story. I guess I've no, always I, seen it I, as I, a I completely sliver. get that. But can mm-hmm. I just say like, my point is completely summed up in the hollow chess. As a fan, I loved seeing it. I loved the fact that Chewbacca hits it, which kills two of the characters because when they were doing the first film, it had too many characters on the screen and Lucas took a couple off and then Phil Tippett and his team this time said, how does put the characters back? And, and then Chewbacca in this film hits it and then a bit of the prop fell off and they left it in and that's how the characters went. All of that I find fascinating at a certain level but I don't get anything out of this whole sequence as impactful as the first time as a child I saw the hollow chest and my jaw dropped and I was like, oh my God, that's so incredibly cool. Yeah. It's, it's like, it, it's it really interesting. It's well done. It's beautifully executed. I happily wrote about it, was enthusiastic to research it <laughs> and go and find things myself, but none of it is going to affect me in the way that it was when I saw it the first time because it was an original new thing, not yeah. just backfilling that. Yeah. Well, uh, again, now we have to be careful not to venture into the aging process, which <laughs> I, think I'm your, I think I'm both your seniors. So oh, I don't know about a, that, my friend. Uh, there comes a point where, you know, things just, uh, we're moving into an era. In fact, I wanted to make this point tonight because I think it's very relevant. Um, I know a number of the designers uh, who worked on this picture. I know a number of the VFX supervisors. I, and and the, the caliber of the work is off the charts. Yep. The, um, the conceptual work is off the charts. The concepts are off the charts. It's, it's just staggeringly awesome work in my mind. Uh, it still fits in the universe, but it bounds the rules a little bit. I mean, I thought that some of the industrial stuff in the beginning really didn't necessarily look like the Star Wars universe, but ultimately played in that universe in a way where I had to like create room for it and say, oh, okay, I guess that could be there. Um, and yet, this when you what 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 is so different in my mind is that we're talking about a scope that is out of control, off the charts, almost unconceivable uh, with regards to the quality and, 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 and range and, um, uh, uh, you know, just sheer, uh, like, volume of work compared to the earlier pictures. Mm. I mean, just, you can take any sequence in this, in this solo picture and compare it not not in terms of just like saying, yeah, the original Millennium Falcon is awesome or TIE Fighters are awesome or, or awesome and X-Fighters are awesome. Uh, that's true. Joe Johnson uh, is, a, is a, you know, a genius. But when you look at the scope of what this picture offered, it's, it's beyond anything that I could have possibly imagined. I, I would say even when I was at Lucasfilm. 
I mean, it would be one thing, one thing to say when I was, you know, 17. But I remember working on the special edition of the, the New Hope, and we were adding a couple of things. Like we were adding, you know, the, you know, expanding Mos Eisley, and we we're adding the, you know, the Rontos and some speeder bikes that floated the, you know, the swoop bikes and stuff like that. But this movie was like massively, um, uh, you know, it just, the, it, it, it's hard for me to actually, <laughs> the number of artists, the number of shots, the number of sequences, the number of, and we haven't even talked about the weird tentacle monster that gets sucked into that crazy, you know, vortex thing. thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and so even getting back to the projector conversation, um, you know, like these, these movies are on a scale that I never thought I'd witness in my life. I mean, I really can say that without hesitation. They're just I, so out of control, yeah. massive. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. And I also say that some of this stuff is really showing the fact that like Rob came from Sony and went into the X-Lab stuff. And so he did a lot of this um, interactive live stuff. And so clearly that's influenced some of the techniques we've been talking about. But notwithstanding that, like in the fact that ILM has such a great R&D and development uh, team. Yeah, I totally agree with you, right? Like it, I can't even begin to understand how you'd go about producing some of the environments, uh, yet alone the characters um, at this scale uh, and with this level of detail. But I still feel like as awesome as all of that is, and I take nothing away from it, I just would have liked that canon of, of creative genius aimed into the future, not into backfilling the past. But I'll, yeah. I'll leave it alone now. I promise. <laughs> um, Matt, can you talk about that opening stuff, uh, especially the World War I trench look? Because I think that's what Ty was just alluding to, which is this, it kind of, um, it was the grunt down in the, in the ground and I kind of got excited by that for a second. Mm -hmm. um, very different look, very dark, oh, the whole film really, uh, than what we've seen before. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I thought that was actually a really interesting sequence and something that at least uh, in the, the, the lore, like I didn't, I, that's something I didn't know, I guess, would be that, uh, you know, uh, Han Solo was uh, a conscripted, uh, you know, soldier. I don't know if he's conscripted or if he enlisted. I don't know if that was clear. But, um, and that he was fighting in some kind of, you know, outland <laughs> style battle with, uh, I, I guess, like with the, imperial forces or something but i thought you know the the whole aesthetic and look of that um sequence was really great it was a lot of like grays and uh deep uh blues and whatnot um it felt like it was happening you know either at night or at dusk um and there was a huge amount of smoke and debris in the air there were um some of those uh, two-legged uh scout walkers uh, maneuvering through that uh, space and environment um, and it, it felt like it was it was reminiscent a little bit of some of the um, stuff in uh, Rogue One I think uh, the battles um, the whether it was Scarif or um, uh, uh, so I can't remember what the other one was now but um but just that sort of uh, uh, saving Private Ryan kind of uh, experience, although it was injected with a certain kind of levity um, and humor that I think yes. is sort of part and parcel for what and who this character, you know, that we're sort of, you know, 
uh, trying to, you know, sort of understand how he becomes the person we, we know, like it's sort of, he's, he's got this kind of sardonic, sarcastic, uh, tongue in cheek kind of, um, you know, and a cocky persona, right? Yeah, yeah. But no, I mean, I thought sequence-wise, like the design of the sequence and the the aesthetics and the the visual effects, the the way it was, um, the what's the uh, DP's name? Uh, Jason would immediately. What was it? Bradford Young? Is that his name? Uh, I'm can I'm going to get it in a second because I we talked but about anyway, wanting to have the the light levels down and I can't remember. It was, yeah, it was Bradford Young. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I just think it, you know, from a cinematography standpoint, like that sequence too, it's just, it's really cool looking. It almost like, you know, it touches into an area that, um, it made me think of, um, uh, you know, the, the Blade Runner 2049 almost. You know, oh, really? Because like I was thinking that, that in the trenches stuff to me almost reminds, because it was comical and he felt out of place. It felt to me like the edge of tomorrow when Tom Cruise at the beginning of that film is kind of uh, attacking yeah, yeah. the aliens and is clearly mm-hmm. like a grunt on the ground that doesn't seem to know which way is up. Though it was even darker and muddier than, than uh, we saw in Edge of Tomorrow. But um, by the way, I do like that film a lot and find it way underrated. Um, so... I think they're even making a sequel. But anyway, um, I digress. But yes, it, it, the thing about the the gritty dark thing is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because there was like these really clean snow sequences and these really clean kind of deserty sequences. Mm-hmm. And yet in my mind walking out, I had that it was a dark film. I don't know why I think that. Did you guys have the impression it was kind of a dark and gritty version? Well, it was. An, I think it was definitely um, moving the, you know, that Star Wars universe into a kind of industrial, more, more. You know, it's funny when you go through the Death Star in so many of the the sequences in the earlier pictures, you see pipes and you see, you know, uh, you know, big girders and construction, and you. Could, I guess you could kind of say that's industrial because it's industrial construction, right? Mm. Um, but you didn't see people in there. You just saw ships flying through, you know, art-directed caves or art-directed tunnels. <laughs> um, yeah. Whereas this one, yeah, I think uh, it, it, it had a sense. That's what I was saying earlier. It's like I, I kind of made room for it, but I wasn't necessarily expecting it. Uh, again, I think it speaks to our present uh, moment in time where, um, you know, technology is really something that's um, – impossible to ignore and um you know the way that it raises havoc with um environments and with people's lives is very topical and um i think it did have a dark quality um especially well of course in the very beginning it was it, i think matt's point was kind of correct uh, uh, 2049 uh, blade runner had that whole sequence where there were these children basically living in this big you know cooling tower or whatever it was some big industrial environment mm-hmm. um and that that was kind of the beginning you know that was the same kind of beginning where you know these um, you know, um, young people were forced to, um, you know, live in slavery. So, yeah, I would agree. I think it, it was pretty dark. But the action beats, on t- I mean, this would be the thing I would say is that the action starts right away. And uh, the action uh, sequence with the chase and, um, you know, the the vehicles is so compelling. Again, I I, I think it really has that Indiana Jones quality. Yeah, that it makes you, um, if not forget, at least abandon 
those, you know, kind of maybe conceptual concepts, uh, you know, uh, as far as like what the nature of those people's lives are like, you know, you're just kind of like, oh, run, you know, like go fast, you know, turn, you know, it becomes a set piece very quickly. So I, I can't believe it. We're kind of out of time. I, I've been enjoying the chat so much. I just uh, realized how long we've been, we've been chatting. So uh, final thoughts, Matt, like um, obviously. Well, I would just. Yeah, go on. Yeah, I would just say like, you know, I, for me, like I, I'd like to go see this movie one more time in the theater. Um, I know uh, <laughs> I, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's one of the Star Wars movies for me that I think is uh Makes it made me feel like a like a kid watching a movie, I guess, more than you know, like someone trying to analyze the sophisticated machinations of the Jedi Order and the you know, like it didn't. I didn't feel like I had to invest that much in it. I could sort of just enjoy it and have fun. I love the sort of you know idea of space pirates and smugglers and you know, sort of this just on the edge of uh, legal activity or illegal activity. And I think my favorite thing in the whole film. I mean, aside from, I, I, I really do love Donald Glover. He's just so awesome as Lando. But um, I really did like um, the sort of buddy cop, you know, sort of Nick Nolte, uh, Eddie Murphy relationship between Chewbacca and Han Solo and the development of that relationship, you know, in the story. I love the 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 guy who played Chewbacca in this, the new actor, I guess he was a... He's Scandinavian or something, a really crazy tall uh, guy. I can't remember his name, but um, but I thought he was great, and I and I really liked that relationship. And and I just thought for my you know seven or eight bucks, whatever it was, to to go see this, I just thought it was a lot of fun, and it was a lot of fun in that Star Wars universe, and it didn't. Um, break any new ground. It didn't, uh, shatter any of my, uh, illusions or, or anything like that, but, uh, it was just really fun. I just really, uh, enjoyed, uh, the experience a lot. Ty, final thoughts? Yeah. I, I kind of think I, I agree with Matt. I, um, uh, I, I, I didn't have high expectations, but I walked out of the theater with, um, you know, feeling satisfied, if that's the right word. I mean, it kind of was easy to switch in and switch out. I think your point earlier um, uh, about, you know, am I going to be reflecting on this in the same way as I did maybe Empire Strikes Back or something? Well, you know, in a weird way, Empire Strikes Back came out when I was, you know, in, you know, 20 years old. And, uh, it it, it it had these amazing questions about, you know, who was Luke's father and was Darth Vader telling the truth? And this was all new stuff. But we've become pretty accustomed to that universe now. And those are, those are uh, longstanding um, narrative uh, pieces that we can reflect back on and look at. And so I think expanding the universe into something that's what I uh, sensed you were suggesting is um, going to be a high bar. I would love to see it. But as far as just like having um, a great cinematic experience with interesting characters, yeah, it sort of delivered. And I would like to say, though, that the um, sequence we didn't talk about with the um, crazy, um, you know, uh, deep space, uh, you know, tentacle creature thing with the Millennium Falcon, you know, being drug into some kind of strange, you know, 
I don't even know what it was, like collapsing star. Mm-hmm. That was another sequence where I just never saw imagery like that before. I mean, it, you know, Del Toro's been playing around with, uh, you know, this kind of um, Lovecraftian creatures that have massive scale. And he did a little bit in Hellboy where you, you know, there's a one flashback or a, a thought of, oh, I guess it's a flash forward where, Ron Perlman is, uh, you know, his horns grow back as Hellboy and he's, there's this cloud and then, you know, these tentacles appear in the darkness and it's like so massive and, and then by comparison, (laughs) this I thought was like so massive in scale and interesting and it didn't, um, it really, it it was really exciting to watch and I, I don't think I've seen anything like that before. So if, even though it didn't, necessarily build character or tell me more about you know han solo or the characters uh, you know that live in that universe i was excited to see that spectacle so it delivered on the spectacle front you know and the ben her front i would say so yeah <laughs> yeah well said yeah well I, I i do like the film as i said my problem is with with prequels, not this one, or rather origin stories. Like, um, even I think a prequel I can probably get away with, but not an, so much an origin story. I just don't find them the best for me. But I thought the filmmaking in this was spectacularly good and I liked the direction of it. I just wanted it to be these marvelous filmmakers with these amazing artists advancing the story, which I never kind of feel like, but I don't want the takeout from this to be that I didn't like the film. And I would recommend it to people and happily, I will watch it again when um, when it comes around to being on uh, digital devices. Well, that's it for this week. Um, Ty, so glad to have you back on the show. Um, it's we, a pleasure. Uh, I've, I've missed it a great deal and I've been busy, but uh, I, I look forward to maybe reestablishing myself uh, with this awesome undertaking. Yeah, because I said to uh, to Matt before you came on the first show, I said, I've heard rumors about this guy and I wanted to know if it was true. And he said, yep, everything <laughs> you've heard about Ty is true. Hey, um, Matt, where um, where can people find you? Uh, well, you can always find me at my website, mattwallen.com, on Twitter, at Matt Wallen. And um, even though uh, it is uh, sort of the summer hiatus, uh, you can usually find me at um, Virginia Commonwealth University in the School of the Arts in the Department of Communication Arts, just a few doors down the hallway from our co-host, uh, Ty. <laughs> <laughs> and Ty, uh, where can people find you, connect? And is there anywhere they can see any of your work? You got a personal website or anything? You know, I have, I've got to uh, share uh, that I've been negligent in uh, keeping a good web presence, uh, mostly because of the transition uh, that, 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 that I've been in for the last few years with regards to education. But I still have an old crazy site that now is super old school at alieninsect.com. And I'm always uh, very open to uh, people reaching out to me on Facebook and just Ty Rubin Ellingson or Ty Rubin, you'll probably get me. And I, I do have a Twitter account, but I don't know yet quite what to do with it. So in the year ahead, something may happen there. Okay, cool. Well, obviously you can find me over at uh, at uh, FX Guide where I do like to keep up to date and <laughs> do quite um, obsessively post um, and uh, on Twitter as Mike Seymour. And thanks to our people that turned up yesterday to see our live uh, uh, mic event at uh, Vivid in Sydney, which is kind of Sydney's South by Southwest kind of in a way. We had a great time there doing uh, live digital people and uh, 
bit bit stressful, but we had some great uh, partners, especially from uh, Epic Games and Cubic Motion and people. And we uh, we had a ball there. Some really great uh, audience questions as well. So thanks for those of you that turned up. Um, of course, if you want to ping me, I, I think it's probably easiest to ping me, um, as we said before, but you can always uh, email me at mikes at fxguide.com. Guys, thank you so much for being with us. I think we want, Matt, I think we really want to go to Westworld, don't we, next? Yeah, I Before think we're, we're one or two episodes away from the end of this season, I think. So, yeah, a lot yeah, to talk could, about. We, very, absolutely. Very much a series, I feel like, for fans and has mm-hmm. been criticized as such because if you don't know what's going on and you start trying to watch it, you'll have no idea what's going on. Having said that, I've been, you know, sort of sipping at the fountain of gorgeousness in their uh, in their weekly uh, doling out of uh, new and complicated things to think about. So I can't wait to talk about that. <laughs> so, um, Ty, have you watched Westworld? Indeed. Uh, we, are, oh. we are well on the Westworld uh, trail here. Well, maybe you'll join us for that one. That's coming up. If you've got any other episodes you guys would like to hear, uh, ping us. There's a lot of uh, movies obviously coming out with Jurassic and uh, got even... Uh, Incredibles 2 um, which is looking like it's going to be a huge hit so uh, just ping us if you want to see some stuff and hear about some stuff and uh, we'll catch you next time thanks so much guys see ya if you have any questions or comments please email us at vfx at fxguide.com copyright fxguide LLC